Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, I welcome back Ralph Jacobson to talk in depth about his work as advocate of solar power in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Ralph has led the growing curve of solar ever since he founded his company, IPS Solar, and that IPS is Innovative Power Systems, back in 1991. But we're talking today about much more than just solar or alternative energy. It's about aligning our lives in right relationship with our mother, the earth, and working to invite women and people of color into a mostly white male industry and learning the intricacies of capitalizing change, like with the Red Lake Nation Reservation in Minnesota. Ralph Jacobson thinks deeply on the complexity needed to lend effective hands to save the earth. Ralph joins us before a small audience on the campus of Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa. Ralph, thanks so much for joining me again for Spirit in Action. Mark, I'm just delighted to be here for a second go at it at this. <laughs> we'll see who wins this time. <laughs> I think the world will win because what the reason I have you here today is because I want to learn how to save the world. That's the topic that we've assigned ourselves. So you're in the business of solar for a number of years now, and even more so, you're in the business of facilitating people acquiring the capital finance experience to make major differences to save the earth. Did I say that well enough? Eventually, yes. At this point in my career, I have a team that we've assembled over the last 15 years, and they're much better at doing almost everything in the business than I am, which means that some would say I'm in my dotage, although I would like to say I'm becoming emeritus. But as the founder of IPS, a solar development company, which we established in 1991, we've ridden the market up and down and up and down and up and down, and now finally up which gives me the luxury of really playing at the margins of the market, focusing my efforts to make access better for people who don't have any access or much access to solar technology, which means, in my case, Indian reservations. And you do have a special connection with Indian reservations. I don't know how much you've been connected previously over in Minnesota or to the West, but your connection with the Menominee tribe in Wisconsin was pretty important. Did you have connections west of Wisconsin before that? My grandfather grew up on an Indian reservation in northern Wisconsin, the Lac du Flambeau, because my great-grandfather ran the sawmill for a lumber company. And my grandfather, he told me stories about growing up on the Lac du Flambeau Reservation. And so I kind of had that in my family mythology, if you will. And so the Indians weren't some people who were over out there in the Dakotas or the Wild West. They were people that my grandfather grew up with. So I, I have always felt that I had an interest in Native Americans and been aware of some of the terrible aspects of our history, you know, with Native Americans for a long time. And given that you started IPS, which stands for Innovative Power Systems, back in 1991, 
you've had a long learning curve, I'd say, to get to the point where you are. I think it was back in 2017, you were recognized as the fastest growing Twin Cities business that year. That can be good in that you're a business and growing very fast, but maybe it meant that you had a slow ramp up time and now you're blasting off. Is it that kind of a change or is it that you finally found what works? What is it that changed that made you the fastest growing in 2017? To me, it feels like we were in startup mode for 20 years until in 2013, the state legislature passed the Minnesota Solar Jobs Act. Among other things, it created the Community Solar Garden Law, where we felt like hard scrabble farmers, you know, just eking out a living up until that point and maybe making a couple million dollars a year in gross revenue. The Community Solar Garden put us in contact with more developers from a more mature market out on the East Coast who came in to see about what's going on with this uh, solar garden law and this new Minnesota market. And we ended up partnering with a company that gave us access to capital. And we went from just doing a couple million dollars worth of business a year to, I think, $30 million the following year. And it was because we were building community solar gardens. And we were going from small systems on rooftops to large systems out, you know, solar power systems, ground-mounted out in cornfields. By now, we've built, I think, about 70 of those and probably have another 30 or 40 under development. By a solar garden, I'm assuming it's like what we have. I'm part of Eau Claire Energy Cooperative. They have where you could buy memberships or you could essentially you're you're buying panels within that solar garden that's part of your power. Is that what we're referring to? It's a similar model. The Minnesota model was very specific and it applied only to Excel Energy, which supplies the Twin Cities and some outlying areas of the state. And it created the subscriber role which is kind of like it's a three-way relationship now. Rather than the customer and the utility, now you have the customer as subscriber and the utility, and then there's the source of the capital that provided the money to build the solar garden. And so the subscriber doesn't actually provide the capital to build the solar garden. And I think the state legislature decided to do that because You're not supposed to take money from unsophisticated investors and directly build whatever it is, the asset that they give you the money for. And so you have to escrow that money until the asset is built, which means that we had to find other money. And so a big utility from the East Coast is actually the supplier of the money for our solar gardens to actually build them. And then once it's built, they have a contract with each subscriber and the subscriber let's say subscribes to 1% of the solar garden. So each month, whatever the solar garden actually produces, 1% of that production shows up on the subscriber's bill with Excel Energy as a bill credit. And then the subscriber has to turn around and pay a payment to the capital provider who actually owns the system. And it's a 25-year contract. And so It's a more complicated relationship, and I I know a lot of other states are watching what Minnesota did, but, you know, there were a lot lot more sophisticated, let's say, market people from the East and the West Coast that came into Minnesota, and they'd figured all these things out, like in Maryland and Massachusetts and California. And so they came in, and we were fortunate to partner with one, so we didn't have to figure all that stuff out. 
But it was very fortunate for us because as a partner with a, a more mature company, we grew very quickly into that market. It actually made me more interested in what the uh, solar industry in Minnesota looks like because to me it looked like, as we point out about some aspects of American life, mostly a bunch of white males. And at this point in my career, I really wanted to start making a difference in that way because I'd had a business since 1991. I mean, I'm the old timer in the business, right? And I wanted to see more people of color, more women in the industry. So with our solar gardens, you know, we've made a point of hiring more people of color and more women. What do your demographics look like now? In my business, I have 35 people, mostly in marketing, sales, and design, and managing projects. And now we have six women, somewhere between 15 and 20% of our workforce is women. And we have, I think, five people from a Latino community, the Native American community, and the African American community as either salespeople, I'm really, uh, well, and crew members. I'm interested in bringing people into more of the sales and marketing role because when we think of the boots on the roof training programs in the solar industry, you imagine people from, you know, the black community or the Latino community, you know, being up there on the roof installing solar panels, doing the grunt work. I want to see them also moving towards white-collar jobs in sales, marketing, and management which are more professional level jobs. But I, I would like to expand our image of where we're bringing people into the industry. Do you have some sense of what the demographics of your employees looks like compared to the other Minnesota companies, which are, I guess, your competition or your co-workers in essence? In Minnesota. Mm-hmm. I was the founding president of the Minnesota Solar Energy Industries Association, which is a trade organization, and its purpose is to build the industry and to make smooth the pathway for the growth of the industry, for better policy. It's always been my perception that I kind of proved out whatever it is that needs to happen next, I kind of prove that out and show people where the mud is so they don't put their foot in it too. And in the case of welcoming people of color into the industry, I also, back in 2009, had signed on to the electrician's union contract, and so I'm a union contractor. And I had hired a lot of people about three years ago out of the black community and done some training, and we were basically doing on-the-job training and sending them to courses that other organizations are providing. But I thought that I would organize them into the union It turns out their story is very different than mine. My grandfather, who was an iron worker, he was the first business agent of the Iron Workers Local 512 in Minneapolis. And so my family story has been that with the unions, the workers, our lives get better. You know, the union workers have jobs that provide a living wage to support a family. Pretty much to a person, the people that I'd hired from the black community had a different story. And they let me know that Their story is that the unions were formed to keep skilled workers out of the state who were being hired back in the 1920s and 30s from down south. So skilled workers were being kept out by the unions. Well, I haven't really explored that story, but I could not get a single African-American employee to sign up for the pre-apprenticeship program for the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the IBEW. 
which was a real surprise to me. And it kind of deflated my sales because I realized that uh, the business model that I was um, thought I was, you know, being such a leader, well, had some people who <laughs> didn't buy into that. And it was the people that I did not expect. It was the African-American people. I think that's something where I think my competitors, the other businesses in the area, maybe watched me go through that. <laughs> and they said, well, we're glad we're not union contractors because I am pretty much the only solar contractor that's strictly solar that actually signed with the IBEW. Most of them refused to sign with the IBEW. They're non-union shops. Well, I know that several of them have hired at least a few people out of the African-American community and the Latino community now. And, well, <laughs> maybe we're all just exploring this together, you know, and they're choosing their path, and I'm kind of recalibrating mine. There's a little piece of that I'm still not quite sure about. So if you work only with union contract electrical, and you've got new employees who are doing electrical but don't want to be part of the union, what doesn't that force a decision for it, you of some sort? It means that I had to let them go. You it was to... painful. And I've actually been involved in trying to help a couple of them find jobs with other contractors because I feel like that was kind of disingenuous. At least I, well, I didn't see it coming, and I feel somewhat responsible for them feeling like they had the rug pulled out from under them. And so I, I've just, uh, this week, have a conversation going on with one of my fellow contractors, and I'm giving a good reference to one of my former employees. And what we're doing with the IBEW now is we're asking them whenever possible, and we need some an electrician off the bench or an apprentice off the bench, can we please have a woman or an apprentice of color? or a journeyman of color. And we've had a Vietnamese electrician, journeyman electrician with us, and we now have a, a woman who is a journeyman. So what it feels like now is we're actually encouraging the union to do more of this because, okay, now they know they have contractors out there who are providing some market pull for them to bring more women and people of color into their apprenticeship program. You said that you were the president, I think, that's the title used for of the association. Are you still that? I mean, after all these years, is this in perpetuity or something? No, we, for, we formed the, uh, it's MINSEA, the Minnesota Solar Energy Industries Association, in 2009. And I was the president until 2014. And since then, have been on the board. And so I'm pretty active on the board. I help organize our yearly conference, things like that make a fuss when I see things that I think are out of whack. So what's out of whack? Okay, you've asked a question that could take us pretty deep down into the weeds <laughs> because the solar industry is right now at a turning point or a sea change. It's a new phase in the market, a paradigm shift in the solar industry because the solar industry since the 1970s really has been something where we've, I think, the people who've been interested, the sector of our society that's been interested, it's the environmental sector of society, and we've wanted to be able to kind of push the envelope and utilize renewable energy faster than the utilities, than the mainstream energy production for society has been willing to move. And, you know, their point has been that it's too expensive, okay? If we deconstruct that and we say, okay, the whole trajectory of the electric power industry has been to grow bigger, 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 and you know, with size of plants and the transmission lines and all, to provide the economics of scale to make power cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. 
when we add the environmental component in there, it changes it because now we can't say that we're going to be cheaper, cheaper, cheaper because we're going to have to make a leap into the more environmentally benign ways of generating energy. And really the big decision has been at what point do the utilities decide to make the jump? And they did that back around the turn of the century with wind, big wind, you know, uh, because of the deal for above-ground nuclear waste storage in Minnesota back in 1994 at the Prairie Island nuclear plant and the Monticello plants. The trade-off or the deal that was made was that, sure, the state will start licensing, the pollution control agency will start licensing the above-ground nuclear storage waste, but they had to develop 800 megawatts of wind power. And so from 1994 until the early aughts, maybe for a 10-year period, they uh, struggled with that. And the people who were engaged with that at Excel Energy, anyways, you know, basically when they made a presentation, their story was that, geez, you know, this is really a, a difficult thing for us and we've got to figure out how to incorporate the wind into, because it blows intermittently into our power mix because, you know, the way we're set up is that we generate power as it's being used. There's no storage. There's no flexibility in the system. And so eventually, you know, with better weather data, better ability to predict with gas peaker plants that can, you know, throttle up and throttle down very quickly, they've become able to incorporate the wind power from those wind farms pretty seamlessly into the mix. And so solar, you would think, would go up that same trajectory. Well, it's been the cost of solar that's been the real problem. And so at the legislature for the last 20 years, whenever solar comes up, it's like, okay, this is way too expensive. Don't make us do more than just a very, very, very thin slice of pilot programs. Well, this year, I was pretty highly engaged in the legislative process because we were trying to get some new let's say, extensions of the community solar garden law that would make the program available to farmers in western Minnesota as well as around the metro area. Well, we didn't get that. So what happened at the Minnesota State Legislature this year was that the narrative the utilities, specifically Excel Energy, had about our effort to extend the community solar garden law was that why are you letting those guys do solar? Why are you making us buy solar? for three times what we could generate it for. Oh, suddenly the narrative about solar is that the utility can do it cheaper. And why do we have this kind of parallel industry doing solar when the utility could just pull solar in, in-house under their roof, and do it a lot cheaper? I guess my complaint is that it's not fair to just spring that on everybody down at the legislature. You know, we should be actually doing joint planning for the market. And we have conversations going on. One of the reasons we formed MINSEA, you know, the Solar Energy Industry Association, and invited the utilities to join was so that we could take off our armor, climb out of the gladiator pit, and then, you know, get in a a room where we can open the windows and have a nice discussion about how we can jointly develop the solar market and seamlessly bring that into the electric power market. Because we'd all like to. I mean, I would like to have the stability and certainty to know how, you know, my company is going to be able to participate in the market as it becomes more a mainstream part of the electric power market. So I think that's the conversation that we have going on post-legislative session. 
I'm wondering if your company and what you're trying to do is driven by the same array of values that is driving it for Excel Energy or whatever, the other competitors or what did you call them? Coopitators. <laughs> Coopitators. <laughs> Rhymes with hot potatoes. <laughs> yeah. I think you could probably and probably have listed out what your goals are for your company, right? So is it just the same bottom line for all of you? Is it just money? Is it, you said that specifically you want to include people of color and women and you want to reach out and change things. Is that a bottom line item for a lot of your coopitators, your coopitators and the other folks? That's a good question. I did not start my business with the thought that I was going to uh, get, make a lot of money very quickly. But during the Carter years, I had really made a career decision of a strong commitment to renewable energy. I'd say that solar energy was the part that I wanted to focus on. And back in engineering school in the 1980s, I got excited about photovoltaics. I knew it was quite expensive and that it really didn't have much of a chance in the marketplace. But I formed the business with the intent to become a local expert champion, a resource for the community, a model to prove out, let's say, the next steps as the market developed. If I were clever enough to see what those next steps were, I would A, stay one, one step ahead of my competition, and B, find where the mud hole is so I could put my foot in it and thereby so that others would not. I would have to say here that my wife has been my partner in this all the way through she has had the good job as a nurse, and it made it possible for me to stay in the game where I would have been out of business a long time ago. But I did something in the early 90s that I didn't realize what the impact would be later, but I wrote down on a lined notebook paper what my goals were for starting the business, and they were what I outlined. You know, I think I just made up 10 things and said, okay, this is who I want to be as this business person. And that disappeared under a pile of papers or into a folder. And I would have to say one of the dynamics between my wife and I for a long time has been that I would maybe every uh, two months she'd be asking me, maybe it's time to go get a real job now, Ralph. <laughs> and uh, this has been great, but uh, you're a local expert, but you know, I'd kind of like some help bringing the money in. Well, the business grew a little bit by a little bit by a little bit, and there's always just enough going on, just enough money coming in that we were able to, able to keep our doors open. But in, I don't know, it was 1999, I found that piece of paper, and I showed that to her, and she cried, and she quit her job. <laughs> she said, Ralph, I've been making you wrong. I thought you were doing this instead of having a job at 3M or some other company as an engineer, you know, making a living. But you've done all these things. You've met those goals. Now I want to be your business manager. That lasted less than a year because then we were both up at 1 in the morning on a Wednesday wondering how we were going to make payroll on Friday. So she went back to her nursing job. Actually, she got a better position, and so that worked out well for her. But that episode really was kind of a turning point. Because by then I had a couple employees and there was a little program that the state of Minnesota had for solar incentives. And so those kind of things started to create a little bit of a market 
where my job of creating market awareness where absolutely none existed was kind of done, and I had more help. I had people at the state energy office and a few competitors who saw that, okay, if Ralph can stick it out and follow his dream here, maybe I can. And so I had people getting into the business and saying, I can help promote this too. And so that's where the coopetition comes in because just because they want to promote their businesses, we all have to promote the idea that the business is a growing one, that it's a good industry. I would also want to say that there were three principles that I wanted to strictly follow in business. One of them was to clean up a legacy of solar installations that really didn't work, and that was the solar heating industry. Because in Minnesota, we tried to heat homes with solar. The plain fact is, the most solar energy comes in the summer. We need it to heat the house in the winter, and it's almost impossible to store the heat that long unless you make a big, expensive system that most people can't afford. And people were trying to do it on the cheap and failing and creating a terrible track record for solar. So I wanted to create installations that performed well and created a good track record for solar. The second thing is I wanted to use and follow principles that the standard construction industry used. Follow the same standards for, you know, getting building permits and meeting inspections and, you know, having good workmanship. Too often people had done shoddy workmanship on their projects because it was in the name of saving the planet. I could see, because I was involved in it during the 1980s in the solar industry, I could see that that didn't cut it. That didn't create a good perception of solar. And so also it makes life easier if we're just all playing to the same standards. And then the third thing was I wanted to create really good working relationships with utilities. With solar photovoltaic power, with solar power systems that generate electricity, we were playing into the electric power market, the electric power industry, And not only do we need to play up to safety standards and, you know, standard practices so that everybody knows what we're doing and can work off of our work. Also, getting to know the engineers, getting to know what their problems are, what they face when we interconnect a solar power system into their grid, the one that they built, the one that they financed, and the one that they're responsible for. I see it as a Quaker value. I put myself in their shoes and I say, what does this, what I'm doing look like to them? I want it to look like something they feel good about, that they can call me if they have a problem, that when they see me come around with the next solar power system, they go, oh, hey, there's Ralph. Yeah, we like his work. He does good work. Because here's, here's a little uh, something that I noticed a long time ago. This is when I was a carpenter back in the 70s. An electrical inspector would come on the site, and maybe I was there when they came on the site. And the first question they would always ask is, oh, who did the work? Why were they asking that? Because they knew kind of who had work that they needed to actually walk around and look at everything because these were the people who cut corners. They also knew who did good work, that they could count on opening up a box and seeing wires that were well-managed, terminations that were well done. And so, you know, paying attention to that little interaction at the beginning of an inspection, I said, well, I want the utilities to feel that way about my work too not only electrical inspectors. So those three principles, we wanted to make sure that if we followed them, other contractors who were our competitors would likely have to follow those principles too. And that builds a better industry.
And Ralph Jacobson is all about building a better industry, and that's why I have him here today for Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website. On that site, you'll find all 14 years of our programs for free listening and download. They go from our site out across the country. Some 40 stations currently are broadcasting Northern Spirit Radio programs. So you can find that list of stations on the Northern Spirit Radio website. You can also find a place to post comments. We love feedback. Feedback is important. So please post a comment when you visit. There's a donate button. Help out if you can. So one of the things that's changed over the years, Ralph, is that PV electricity has gotten tremendously cheaper. My understanding is now that it's cheaper than coal to produce electricity from photovoltaics. Is that also true with respect to natural gas or oil or hydroelectric? Well, let's focus in on what makes it cheaper to build a PV system now. When I started the business in 1991, I think I was paying something around $25 a watt for a solar panel. So a 100-watt panel, $25 times 100 watts is $2,500 for a 100-watt panel. I can buy a 400-watt panel now, four times the size, for it's about 50 cents a watt. So that's about $200. We've come down to about, I don't know, what is that, 4% of what it was. And so because the price of a photovoltaic panel has come down so dramatically, you can build a power system with solar panels and an inverter and tie into your electric power system, you know, for, you know, the price of a pretty good toy, like a snowmobile or a riding lawnmower. But the economics of scale, when we look at the electric power market, you look at the bigger, 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 cheaper, cheaper, cheaper dynamic, and you see that when the narrative changed at the legislature, because the utility was saying, okay, we can build it cheaper now, why are we doing any of these other things that are more expensive? Because we have to pass that along to our customers. What they were saying is if we build utility scale, bigger, 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 we are definitely able to bring it down to below the cost per kilowatt hour of a coal plant. But what we've done over the past 40 years with the renewable energy industry that's been kind of parallel to the utility industry, what we've done is we've de-risked the technology. We've made it practical. The equipment, you know, as, as our market has grown in little steps and little steps and little steps, The manufacturers of all the components that go into a system, the inverters, the switches, the panels themselves, the racking that it's mounted on, all the components, we figured out ways to make them cheaper. So what we've done is made it possible for the utility to come up with that narrative. What we're asking is to say, please, don't just cut us adrift and say, okay, now you can go sell hot dogs or a better cup of coffee We'd still like to be in the industry. And the thing about solar that is so disruptive is you can deploy it at so many scales. You can do it at the utility scale. You can also do three kilowatts on somebody's garage in South Minneapolis. And there's a rationale for doing it all over the place, and that is resilience. Because the central station plant, and that might be out in South Dakota or western Minnesota, and then you've got big transmission lines bringing it into the city the way that we've been doing electric power, That's going to be a dominating part of the electric power market 
in the future. But what we're also seeing is that because communities want resilience, they want the flexibility that the power system has never had. What happens when we add storage? We can put storage in all over the place in the electric power system in the distribution system, in the city itself. And that's where our industry wants to move to, is combining solar plus storage. Because now you're building resiliency in for communities. But you know, Ralph Jacobs, and there was another reason that I had you here today, and that's we've been talking about this for about a year now, where you've been dealing with financing, and specifically with respect to some of the tribes you've mentioned. How do you finance major solar initiatives for groups? How do you empower them to take control of their energy health? And I think you've been instrumental in doing some of this. And I'd like you to talk, if you could, about the Red Lake Solar Project and other manifestations that are going on that are really enhancing the power that we have to make a difference. First of all, disclaimer, I don't know much about the economics on Native reservations. Okay, so I'm a student of capital because for all of my career in solar, the money for the solar had to come from somewhere. And the market trajectory for me is that in the 1990s, it was people who were very wealthy. I'm talking about Rockefeller heirs and who had ideals. And they wanted solar. They were the early adopters, the early of the early adopters. They wanted solar because they were environmentalists and they just did not want to participate in a power system that was ruining the atmosphere and climate. So the early adopters were not a very consistent market. And so as the price of solar has fallen and the incentive programs have gotten better, what we've seen is that the market for solar has moved from the wealthiest more towards the middle class. Whether it's wealthy people or middle class, the money has to come from somewhere to buy all that equipment and to pay me. And I've always been on the other side of the table from where those decisions were made about how it was going to be paid for. And generally, I could see that the calculation was, how quick is the payback? Now, I'd have to just to jump back to utility scale. Now, utilities, when they raise the funds and build the asset, their calculation is more like a 20-year or a 40-year payback. When individuals want to own their own power production, I think there's another standard that an individual doesn't want to wait for 20 years to you know, hit the break-even point. A utility is willing to do that because they own and operate equipment for long periods of time, and they make their money over long periods of time. So when I've been dealing with individuals who are making the calculation, either they just want it and they don't care about the payback, or if they do care about the payback, they need a lot of help. They need tax credits, they need incentive programs, and generally they need for me to, let's say, forego my next month's salary. That's always been a very difficult conversation. I mean, people would offer me, we can give you plenty of market spiff if you will do it for half price. I thought, well, the last 10 people that I talked with also made that request. I'm sorry, I can't conduct a business that way. So it's always been somebody else making the decisions about capital. And it's created in me a real curiosity as to, you know, does it have to be that capital makes people so conservative? I mean, these people are making decisions, presumably, about, I want to do the right thing and help save the planet, but boy, i got to make the money back in five years. Oh, really? How does that play against seven generations? How does that play against, you know, having your great-great-great-great-grandchildren having good air to breathe and having fresh water to drink? 
you know, having to have a payback in five years. It seems like a real double standard to me. One of the drivers for the Red Lake Band of Ojibwe in wanting to move away from coal is that they have treaty rights, perpetual treaty rights, to their fishery on their land and in their lake of Red Lake. And so they have a commercial fishery where they fish for walleye and they sell walleye to restaurants down in the cities and members of the community eat walleye. They sell it at the restaurants. Well, there's mercury building up in that lake. And it comes from coal being burned in Montana and western North Dakota. But they have three casinos. They have a lot of public buildings. They know that they're part of the problem. They use a lot of electricity that's made from coal. And so they know that they have to move away from burning coal more quickly than the rest of society. And so they have a driver that is, goes beyond that quick payback. So it's not such an economic driver. And I just want to set the stage for what led me into the relationship with Red Lake. And so they conceptualized a solar project. So I got brought in to do a feasibility study and just, you know, characterize the buildings and how much solar we could fit on them and how much power they use and talk with the utility and make sure that we're all communicating and all that. And, you know, create the technical basis for the project. Then someone else was going to finance Okay, twice that financing fell through with the first financer and with another financer who just went dark. They disappeared. And I thought, okay, I carry this Quaker value, and I'm going to name it a Quaker value of wanting to build right relationship with Native people. And so here I am involved in conceptualizing a project that has (laughs) suddenly got no financing and it ain't going to happen. And I don't want to be part of that. So at the same time as this drama was playing out over a year and a half, at one of these FGC gatherings, I went to a book signing where one of the books from the Quaker Institute for the Future being put out on the table was Towards a Right Relationship with Finance, which sort of creates a distinction between local capital and global capital. Global capital being sort of the exploitive world's economy that wants to come into a community, take natural resources, put resources in, but take more out than it puts in so that it can make a profit, as opposed to the economy on the ground of goods and services that people exchange in every local community. Okay, and then building on that, Transition USA, which many of your listeners have probably heard of, maybe, oh, you you interviewed Rua Swenerfeld, and she gave a great primer on Transition USA. Well, I went to the first conference over at McAllister College in St. Paul at about that same time and heard about things that communities in Detroit and Oakland and other communities that are really you know, struggling, but they're bootstrapping. They're pulling themselves up by the bootstraps, developing a local agricultural economy because all the infrastructure has been pulled out by the auto industry and so forth. Well, it kind of kindled in me the idea that local capital comes in little pieces, but it's in relationships, in local businesses, in skill sets, in the kind of resources that are available in the local community. Okay, after the financing opportunity fell through for Red Lake, I thought, well, maybe this is the opportunity to try out this idea about local capital. Where does it exist? How can it be gathered in its little pieces to do something that is wonderful and maybe foundational for a community for economic development? 
I looked around at my Quaker community and thought, well, now, here we have this notion that we want to be, let's say, paddling our canoe on a parallel path with the native canoe. You know, we don't want to be putting them out of the water. We don't want to be infringing on their ability to live. But yet we have a lot of wealth. And this might be just the right opportunity to gather wealth in little pieces in the Quaker community and put it to work, demonstrating to the Red Lake community that, yes, we can gather capital in little pieces and make it do something wonderful and foundational in your community. And then, perhaps, it's sort of like we kindled a campfire and we just gave you a coal. Now you can kindle your campfire. So... I started talking with people in the Northern Yearly Meeting, in the Twin Cities, you know, Friends Meeting, Minneapolis Friends Meeting communities, and said, how about this? I got this great project that the financing fell through for. I wonder if we could, I mean, we've talked about forming an investment pool, you know, and doing economic development projects somewhere. So what we did was we said, okay, I know how much it'll cost to put the first system on the government center at Red Lake. So let's use that as our guinea pig, and we will see if we can raise that much capital. It was about $125,000, I figured. So let's see if we can raise that. One of the first people that I started really in deep into that conversation with said, well, you know, I'd love to be an investor, but you know, I'm going to be a passive investor, and I can't use those great federal tax credits and the incentives as a passive investor because I don't have any passive income to speak of. And so I had to go back to the attorney that I was working with to kind of make sure we were on the good side of all the state law, federal law, utilities, you know, so that what we were going to do would actually, you know, land well for everyone. And at the same time, I had gone to six banks to see if I could get some loan money. Oh, maybe I can raise 50000 borrow the other 75000 something like that. Well, I was refused by six banks including the bank that does a lot of business with the tribe. But that banker said, well, you know, after you've done your first two, why don't you come back and talk to us? Because now you'll have a track record. And I said, okay, well, thanks a lot. And I think my lawyer and I realized at the same time that it would be a lot easier in terms of, you know, each person who wants to participate in this, the little project of mine, if... They didn't have to, you know, do some finagling to pretend that they were a passive investor with passive income and all, but to just say, well, how about if you give me a microloan? So what we did was um, we sort of flipped it around and said, well, instead of going to the banks, going to my community for equity capital and going to the banks for debt, I'm going to go to my community for debt. And then maybe we don't need to go to the banks at all. And I'll put on the equity that needs to be there in order to utilize the tax credits so that the project, because ultimately what we wanted was that the tribe benefit from the tax credits. Because I do, in the Twin Cities, I do a lot of projects for schools where, you know, we take the tax credits and then we pass the benefit along to the school because schools aren't taxable entities. A Native nation is not a taxable entity. But in the law, they are very explicitly able to benefit from tax credits, just like municipalities and schools. So we were on the good side of everybody there. So I took out 23 microloans from people in the Quaker community, raised about $115,000, put in 10000 of my own, built the system on the government center. So I would say I'm feeling my way along. And this is the, the, it's the Quaker principle of way opens, 
way opening. So the way opened for me to see just far enough that I could see that we could build that project. But I can't see how we're going to raise the money for the, the next $20 million worth of projects to really bring the community off of coal. But here's one coal in the campfire now. And can we kindle another campfire with that coal? And so I would say that in answer to your question, I'm a student of capital. I'm not like somebody that knows a lot about the capital markets. I'm not an expert from Wall Street or from big capital. I'm finding out about one of the ways to build projects for communities using all those little bits and pieces of capital. And by the way, think about how much trust that involves. People in the community of Quakers in the Twin Cities have known me all my life, basically. And so I think that, you know, people were willing to give me the benefit of doubt and say, well, you know, he's been in the solar industry for a long time too. Maybe I can give him $2,000 alone and I'm hoping he can pay it back. You know, it looks like he's got a good plan. He's going to take the tax credits and each year use that to pay me and everybody else off. So that's kind of the trust that we've built this on. The faith has never meant a lot to me in terms of the traditional way that the word is used, like faith that I do the right things in my life and my soul will be saved. I've always felt that I have an eternal soul that has to learn its lessons in each life. So being saved and having faith in that never meant much. But boy, when I want to stick my neck out as the capital provider for an Indian community, I need to have faith that way will open. And so faith has come alive for me Hmm. in this project. I'm really glad for Red Lake and for you that that's true. Ralph Jacobson can do it in this case. You've got a community of trust that is going to help support you in this. Is it exportable to other places? Because that's why I heard you visioning that you want this to continue on and to be helping other people as well. Sure. So the state of Minnesota several years ago enacted the MinVest law, which is it allows for crowdfunding. And what I did was essentially crowdfunding for debt. I got a crowd of 23 people to give me microloans. The MinVest website is available for crowdfunding. And what it does is it, it applies only to people who are residents of the state of Minnesota. So it just keeps it within our borders. And it allows for unsophisticated investors to participate in crowdfunding schemes like the one that I was doing. And instead of having to go to the Securities and Exchange Commission to get registered and probably you know $50,000 worth of investment in that, it sets up that the Department of Commerce of the state of Minnesota is the vetting agency. So I basically you know work with a lawyer to put my program together, and it's an offer that goes up on the MinVest website that first has to be vetted by this Department of Commerce. They give it the smell test. They say, well, okay, you know, you're telling the investors uh, or the, the potential participants the right things. You're not over-promising. It looks like you're being realistic. You know, it's, it's got all the right pieces. It passes the smell test. So, okay, here you go. Now you can put it up and go live. And from that point on then, I have my marketing team having been waiting in the wings to start talking with church groups. So, you know, the Temple Israel, the Jewish community, the Unitarian community, the Quaker community, you know, the the church community in the Twin Cities is very strong. And we have the Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light organization that is a a real uh, champion of using MinVest for crowdfunding because it seems like a real populist way to raise money, raise capital, to do a lot of really cool projects around the state. 
and we're going to be their guinea pig. So again, we're the proving, I'm the, the one proving it out to see if we can raise the capital to build a system that might cost $250,000. So it's sort of the next step up. So way will open that far to building the next system and going to a larger community. And it's not trust. They don't know me. You know, I, I don't attend the Unitarian Society. I don't go to events at the at Temple Israel, but I know people there. So they'll have me come and do my dog and pony show and publicize the MinVest website, and we'll hope that we can crowdfund to do a solar plus storage system at the, um, I think this one's going to be at the Red Lake Tribal Employment Rights Office, which is the office you work with to make sure you get people from the tribe involved in your project. And by the way, when we built the one on the government center, I happened to meet a young man from Red Lake who lives in the Twin Cities, who his dream was to have a solar business, And it came at the right time when I had raised a fair amount of money and was starting to think, okay, how am I going to put together the team to go up there and install this? And then I thought I'd have to hire people from the tribe, you know, to be part of that team. Well, he got a lot of good help from Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light and other people that he knows to set up his business. And he went up there and he hired people from the tribe who had like way more construction savvy than I had anticipated. And basically, it was all tribal members who built that system. So, so we're ahead so of... So you're doing your work on the various levels that you want to work. You're enabling people, but the local construction and experience and building it uh, amongst people of color and all varieties, people who haven't had the opportunities before. Yeah, right. And so they actually got to take a bigger leadership role mm-hmm. in that first project. And I'm really looking forward to working with them on, on the next project and hopefully the one after that and the one after that. Well, let's cycle back to the beginning, Ralph, and end with where we began, saving the planet. I think you do have, it's only partially tongue-in-cheek, but certainly it's part of your aspiration to save the planet. Are you seeing way open for that overall now? Are you seeing the path that we as people, as a country, as a a world are going to walk, can walk and get there? Because there's a lot of people who are really dubious about the future of the earth. I'm not a prognosticator about that. I guess there's another opportunity for faith that the creator in the long haul, the creator has more, more power, knows what to do. More resources. But hopefully the creator's whispering directions to us. Well, you know, here the, I, I, I want to frame your question a little differently. As the creator responds to our efforts to undo creation, if you want to put it in such bleak terms, will there be a place for humanity in the next creation? You know, I, I want to say that I, okay, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, okay, there's, a, there's an effort amongst Quakers for sure, but maybe it's, the, it's Joanna Macy and the cosmologists who are talking about our story and changing our story about ourselves. The image came to me uh, maybe a couple of years ago that we are, uh, I, like, I love the concept of original sin because to me it says, it's, it's like growth in aware, self-awareness, Original sin has to do with uh, the coming in of shame into our culture, into our who we are, our psychic state. And try to shame your cat. <laughs> Doesn't work. No shame. You can do it with a dog, though. <laughs> but we have some societies where shame works kind of well and others where it is extremely 
uh, it's used as a, as a major socializing tool. So all I mean to say is that humanity may be like the child who just went through the terrible twos and was just an absolute wretched kid to their parents. Through tantrums, just made life miserable. But at some point, my parent will be elderly. And at some point along my life journey, I glimpsed my parent as somebody who's going to die, somebody who's going to leave me, somebody who's going to suffer, somebody who's going to experience old age or not old age, but that I'm going to have to deal with their dying. And so the thought that follows on to that is that I'm going to have to take care of them. I think we're at that coming of age. I cry because my dad is 91, and I spend a lot of time taking care of him. I think any technology is only as good as the imagination and the hands of the people that it's being used by. And I guess my faith is that humanity will be able to use solar energy and all other technologies to come you know, now and, and after in the context of taking care. You're confident we're growing past our terrible twos that we'll get into our mature care for our mother, father. You can't see the shrug that he, Ralph just gave. <laughs> it's an act of faith. Well, I'm grateful that you're willing to, and that you've had the vision to act in faith from when you started your company back in 1991, that you've been able to provide leadership, that you've had a partner who participated in helping make sure this is possible, and that you've had the state of Minnesota as a partner and these other companies and your co-opitators that you've been working with, including the native tribes at Red Lake, and just all of the people with whom you nurtured and sought and found faith to work together. I'm grateful for your success, Ralph, and I'm grateful for the future of the people working together to make it possible that we can be faithfully taking care of our parent, the earth. And thank you for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Mark, thank you very much for having me on the air for round two. It's been fun. The links for IPS Solar, MinVest, Mincia, and the Red Lake Nation are all on northernspiritradio.org. Great thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh